Hello again, and welcome to another week of Rotating Reels. I'm one of your hosts, Hank Showalter, and I'm calling in from Seattle, Washington. Joining me today are Keegan Tran, calling in from Portland, Oregon. Uh, don't make me choose. And Taylor May, calling in from Kauai, Hawaii. Hi, 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 hi. <laughs> So uh, this week, as you probably heard in our opening bumper, it's a Hank week, uh, which means we're going to be reviewing a fairly disturbing movie that is quite dark. So if, if you anticipate that uh, disturbing and dark topics may upset you, you know, fair warning. Uh, the movie we're going to be reviewing this week is 2017's The Killing of a Sacred Deer, directed by Yorgos Lanthimos and starring... Uh, Colin Farrell and Nicole Kidman. So, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, I'm going to read you the IMDb blurb real quick. It reads as follows. Stephen, a charismatic surgeon, is forced to make an unthinkable sacrifice after his life starts to fall apart when the behavior of a teenage boy he has taken under his wing turns sinister. Um, so, it's a movie I particularly like. Uh, for some reasons that I think I'm actually going to save to even talk about until we get into the review of the movie. But it's definitely a movie that uh, pushes some of the bounds of viewers' comfort. So I just want to throw that up front here for anyone thinking they might watch it purely on a recommendation. Um, So before we get into reviewing the movie, we have a couple orders of business. Uh, The first one is I'd just like to remind everyone that we have a Patreon with some uh, exclusive Patreon content that is available to subscribers who subscribe for the price of $5 a month. Uh, That content is a show we call Rotating Reels After Hours, where it's kind of rotating reels, but a little bit zanier, and the topics are still related to movies, uh, but they're not strictly reviews, though there are the odd review uh, sprinkled in there. Uh, Next week, we're planning to do a streaming service shootout. So if you subscribe to our Patreon, then tune in next week and you'll be able to hear us uh, decide what we like best out of amazon prime hbo max disney plus netflix hulu uh, i don't know maybe we'll throw tubi in there peacock you know some <laughs> of the outside bets but uh you know if that sounds interesting to you feel free to check us out uh, at uh, on patreon you can find that by just typing in rotatingreels.com in the uh, url bar of your browser also next week Our main episode is going to be a review of Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead, which is a horror movie coming out that I think will likely be a little bit lighter than the movie we're reviewing this week. Uh, So look forward to that. We'll have more on that movie uh, after the review. Now then, next up, last thing before the review, we're going to go through what we've been watching. Uh, We mentioned it last week, but I'll reiterate one time. Uh, We've received some feedback that this is a segment that runs fairly long. So we are putting in some efforts to cut it down. So each of the hosts gets roughly three minutes to go through everything they've watched in the past week. This will be easier for some hosts and harder for others. And with that in mind, I'm going to ask Keegan to start us off. Keegan, your three minutes starts now. Cool. So I watched a couple things this week. I am back in theaters with full force, really taking uh, the most of my $21 subscription to Regal Services. Uh, so the first thing I watched was I saw Spiral from the Book of Saw, which is the newest movie in the Sp- Saw franchise. Uh, last week, I watched the original, which is just Saw. I think it was made 15 years ago, and it feels very, very different from this movie. Spiral is still a fairly cheap movie. Uh, it's made with a mostly black cast, though, which is pretty interesting. Um, it's a bit of a love child of Chris Rock, who had directly approached uh, Bloomhouse saying that he had wanted to make one of these movies for a fair bit of time. Uh, as a movie on its own, I think it's uh, just pretty mid-tier. Uh, there's some fun stuff. I think some of the traps are pretty fun, um, but it's pretty poorly acted, and I think there's a lot of ADR. Um, I was going through Chris Rock's IMDb page, and it seems like he very rarely breaks out of comedy and i think he wanted to use this as a little bit of like an inflection point in his career and it's just really really early in his non-comedy career to get any kind of enjoyment out of this he's really stiff and he's just really really awkward Um, but a lot of the things that don't involve you know his monologues or things that focus on his character are uh, pretty fun and i think there's some pretty interesting uh conversations about like policing in america which is not something i would expect from a saw movie 
Um, and the only other thing I saw this week, which I will go fairly light on because it's next week's review, but I also saw Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead in theaters. Um, so this is coming out next week on Netflix officially, but Netflix wanted to get a little bit of a wider audience on this, so they actually partnered with Cinemark to make sure that the movie could come out at a very limited theatrical run. They'd done this before. They did this with The Irishman, which I think they showed in Alamo Draft Houses, uh, which would have been a cool experience. But this is in Cinemark, uh, which is not the Alamo Draft House. Definitely uh, much worse quality theater. But I really enjoyed this movie, and we'll, we'll get into it next week. But I think this is pretty fun for Zack Snyder. Um, I think he's a director that doesn't really do nuance well, and I don't think he's a particularly bright guy. So I think just having like a loud, <laughs> zany action movie with a bright neon uh, bumper right up front starring Dave Bautista is, man, it's just, it's crack cocaine for the guy, right? He's going to go bananas on it. Uh, I think my favorite Zack Snyder movie is 300. So if you're in that that camp of not really liking his superhero stuff, like I think his Watchmen is pretty terrible. I've tried a couple times now to watch both versions of Justice League, um, as well as Superman, uh, Batman versus Superman. It's just he really does not seem to have a good understanding of source material. So when he gets to do something that's like this, that's just from his dumb dumb uh, fun teenage boy mind, I think it turns out really fun. So we'll get into it more next week, but <laughs> I, I really enjoyed my experience of this. I know I'm running long, but as a theatrical experience, this is something that's really fun to watch with a large audience. It's kind of like uh, a dark comedy in a lot of senses. So people are laughing out loud, really loudly. There's a couple jump scares where I heard people like kind of gasping and I really, really missed that theatrical experience and this kind of gave it back to me. So that's my week, pretty light with two movies. All right. Thanks, Keegan. And you just barely went over your three-minute time. I'm still going to put some play-out music over it, but uh, congrats. <laughs> now then, with that, it's Taylor's turn. Taylor, I know you're in Hawaii, so we expect a light week, but uh, have you watched anything? Yeah, yeah. I watched two documentaries, and I'd already seen both of them, but people I'm with hadn't seen them, so I got to rewatch them. Uh, the first one going clear it's uh, it's about scientology i'm sure a lot of people have heard about it um just wacky and zany as ever always good for a, a, a good laugh um and the second one probably way less well known which is called pandora's promise um it's about nuclear energy and it's just really fascinating documentary not particularly well done um but they lots of interviews with all the people that were at the forefront of nuclear energy um where it is now the just general background science about uh, levels of radiation that exist in our world already. Um, so just really fun, really um, promising uh, for the future of nuclear energy. Um, so that's, that's, that's all I watched. Wow. So both of those sound interesting. Um, and I feel almost bad for glossing over them. But Taylor, you kept your what you've been watching at under one minute. Um, which I think probably deserves some sort of an award at the next release, the next annual release. So um, congrats there. Um, thank you, thank you. But also, thanks for bringing both those docu documentaries to my attention. Taylor, have you? Do you have like other recommendations for Scientology docs? I've seen. Oh man, what's the British guy? Uh, I'm blanking on his name. He he kind of looks like John Oliver, but I've seen his which is pretty fun. Um, and I, I haven't seen this before. Would you recommend it? Yeah, yeah, I would. Um, it's not perfect. I haven't found like a perfect Scientology documentary, and I probably won't because the topic is pretty saturated for me now. I'm fully convinced that it's, uh, it's just Looney Tunes and I don't need to spend any more time thinking about it. <laughs> uh, but if you're interested, it's, it's bizarre. I mean, it's, it's crazier than you think it is, honestly. Wow. Okay, that, well, that's all I that, need. That's a high crazy bar for me, so I'm going to have to check it out. Because um, I actually have never seen a Scientology documentary, but I've read a fair amount on the topic. So anyway, I'm curious. I'll watch oh, this. I'll see if it really is crazier than I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, you just these, these guys get up there and they start these meetings and they're in these rooms that look like it's like a, a real cheap reconstruction of the Vatican. And they get up there and they start saying all of these things like exceeding operating parameters, beta levels, blah, blah, blah. And the whole audience is just clapping, going nuts. And then Tom Cruise gets up there and he's saying that we're fighting for the future. And then he salutes this massive painting of L. Ron Hubbard and everyone cheers. I mean, it's just 
It, it seems Wait, fake. They... It seems like there's no way these people are this crazy. Do they have footage of that? Yeah, yeah, man. Oh, okay, yeah, you just sold me. Say no more. I'll watch it. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I thought I thought their uh, their lawyer squads probably did a, a good job of keeping that sort of thing suppressed, but now I have to go see it. Honestly, the craziest thing in, in the whole story for me is that they beat the IRS. The I, they owed like a billion dollars to the IRS, and they just started emailing and writing letters to irs agents that were on the case and they just annoyed them enough that the irs said that they were uh, a religion and didn't have to pay that tax and to beat the irs is a pretty incredible feat so yeah al capone couldn't do it um <laughs> but with that i'm going to cut us a little bit short on this discussion um might make it into an after hours in the future but we got to keep this what we've been watching rolling so i'm going to jump into my what i've been watching Again, sorry to cut you off, Taylor. Hate to be that guy. No, no, no. Um, but so anyway, what I've been watching, going to start with TV, then I'll move into my movies. Um, mentioned it a few weeks in a row. I've been watching uh, a fair amount of The Disastrous Life of Psyche K. It is one of my favorite animes. Um, I uh, I don't want to harp on it too much because I've harped on it so much on the past in the past. But I'd say just if you ever just need to feel pretty good it's worth checking out like it's not going to make you feel bad about yourself about the world it's it's just lighthearted and warm and sometimes that's a nice thing to have so anyway been watching that um i also watched the first episode of netflix's the sons of sam which is a uh, a true crime documentary recommended by my girlfriend or not recommended by her but uh selected by her from the netflix lineup and uh that one you know, I, I've mentioned a number of true crime documentaries that have really caught my attention in recent weeks. This honestly isn't one of them. Um, I'm sure it's a really interesting case. It's just, it's a pretty slow-paced documentary. And, like, the, the twists and turns are not enough to, to, to really keep me there. Um, so anyway, I'm going to continue watching it, maybe. But I don't know if I would recommend it at this stage. Uh, you know, go check out Murder Among the Mormons. That's more fun. Um... But besides that, I also watched another new Netflix series, uh, which is a Netflix anime called Yasuke, which is loosely based on the life of Yasuke, who was a, uh, a historical samurai who uh, hailed from Africa, but he found himself in service to the Japanese general uh, Nobunaga. And uh, anyway... I checked it out because I knew a little bit about the historical story. Uh, it, obviously, it's kind of shrouded in legend. It was a, a fairly long time ago, but I was curious to see how uh, how it was done. And there there were some impressive credits behind it. Uh, it's got Lakeith Stanfield playing the starring role. It's got a soundtrack all by Flying Lotus. And uh, I really do like the voice acting and the soundtracking to the show, but... I'm not sure that I really like the show. I think that it's a little bit more of a fantastical take on the tale I, than I would have liked. I would have liked like a little bit more of like a down-to-earth samurai show with like a hip-hop vibe. Um, but you know, maybe that's personal taste. I'd say check it out if you're into action anime. But uh, anyway, that's Netflix's Yasuke. And that's the last TV show I watched this week. I also watched several movies this week, and I have to say, after my weekend of movie watching, I feel a much older man, because it was pretty heavy. Uh, on Friday night, I started out with Ben Wheatley's Into the Earth, which is a horror film produced by Ben Wheatley out of Britain. Um, it's a very recent one. I believe it was uh, debuted at this year's South by Southwest Festival, and it's kind of a, a folk horror movie mixed up with some like mild science fiction trappings. And it's good, but it's hard to watch. They... Uh, uh, I, I won't go into too much detail, but they don't they don't track the camera away from uh, what they're showing on screen. So you know, don't go in if uh, you're easily made queasy by by violence. Um, but I definitely would recommend it. Also, not at all suitable for people with uh, photo epilepsy. It is mm. very flashy. Uh, I actually had to close my eyes a few times, and I'm pretty dead to that stuff. I watched Pokemon as a kid. Um, but so uh, besides that and I'm way over time now so I'm going to rush through this uh, on Saturday night I watched Gaspar Noé's Into the Void it's a 2 hour 40 minute movie that is it's shot entirely in the first person and it's about the dying moments of a drug addict in Tokyo, Japan 
and the movie is just him dying and having an out-of-body experience where he sees uh, parts of his life from before and the aftermath of his death. It's a really heavy movie, it's really psychedelic, but I personally think it's really well done. Um, again, not really for the faint of heart. They show some pretty horrific stuff that is very down-to-earth, but uh, worth watching if you're into that sort of thing. That is Enter the Void, uh, directed by Gaspar Noé. And then on Sunday night, I watched The Killing of a Sacred Deer, which I think, and I'm going to stop the fade-out music here, I think <laughs> The Killing of a Sacred Deer is the perfect segue into our review of The Killing of a Sacred Deer. So, for anyone that's listening, um, for all of our Rotating Reels uh, audience members, this is going to signify the beginning of the spoiler-free section of the review of The Killing of a Sacred Deer. We're going to talk about it, avoiding spoilers for a bit, and then we're going to move on to a section with spoilers. So if you haven't seen the movie, this part of the review is still safe for you. Um, so I'm going to ask my co-hosts for their kind of general impressions of the film in a moment. Uh, but first, I would just like to kind of introduce it as the person that recommended it. As I mentioned, it's a 2017 film uh, directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, who has a, he's a Greek director. He has uh, some films in his filmography that are in Greek, but he has a more recent uh, spread of films that are in English, a couple of which have been published through A24 which I kind of adore, uh, despite the fact that they are a fairly pretentious distribution company and other people have more complicated feelings towards. But uh, anyway, this movie, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, was the second of Yorgos's uh, films with A24, the first being The Lobster. The Lobster is a dark comedy. This movie is much more a tragedy than a comedy. It is uh, actually so much a tragedy that uh, I would call it uh just a, a complete tragedy uh it's it really doesn't have any comedic elements and it is based uh fairly directly actually on a greek tragedy written in the 400s bc called iphigenia at alis which i probably butchered but anyway so it's based directly on a tragedy it actually does not vary that widely from its source material, though it does take place in a modern setting and all the, the names are kind of swapped out. But uh, because of that, it's got that kind of very old pagan, like really heavy tragedy vibe. And uh, I really dig that about it, but I know it's uh, it can be contentious. So with that, I want to ask my co-hosts, what did you think? Did you uh, enjoy the movie? Are you never going to watch one of my recommendations again? What, uh, Taylor, why don't you start us off? Uh, I, think, I think the best way to sum this up is just, and I think this is true for The Lobster, too, for this, both of these guys' English-language movies, but this is just depressing Wes Anderson. You get interesting <laughs> framings, you get this really stilted monologue uh, or monotone dialogue, um, and then nothing really seems to matter or make sense. It's just a lot of weirdness only to be weird. Um, so I, I'm not not a big fan of, the, of this movie, honestly. I actually I took some classics courses in college, so I, I had read this play, and and I know Hank, we didn't want to compare the two too much, get into a whole plot thing, but it feels like it varies a lot from the play, so much so that I would I would only say it's like kind of inspired by the play. But you you seem to think it was more directly uh, linked, so maybe we could talk about that in the spoiler section. Um, but. Yeah, the score's great. The score's really heavy. The, the camera works this interesting kind of gliding, steady cam work. Um, the, some of the acting's okay, but otherwise it was just a lot of, oh, no, now this is going to happen. This scene's coming. This scene's coming. Just, and for no, no real payoff at the end, no lessons learned, no morals. Um, so, so, yeah, Hank, both this and The Lobster, I don't, I don't know, man. Not, not for me. <laughs> Fair enough. Keegan. Yeah, so if Taylor says this movie is not for him, <clears throat> I think my official grading on this is very, very much not for me. <laughs> I uh, <laughs> I actually had texted the other two guys as we were watching this that I didn't know if I could complete the movie after uh, some events that we'll probably get into into spoilers said. Uh, while <clears throat> never, you know, moving into full graphic violence or being, you know, upsetting from that perspective of being like a snuff film, uh, are just pretty... Uh, abhorrent to watch and just kind of weird and unsettling for it for the sake of 
maybe things that I'm not picking up on, but it, to me, it feels like just kind of for the sake of being odd and being weird um, and making the, the audience feel as kind of uncomfortable as possible, which I don't know if that was the intended effect. I think Hank probably has a better hang on this movie than I do. Um, I, I definitely mirror a lot of things that Taylor said, uh, but one of the things that I'm happy I got out of watching this movie is kind of exploring my own uh, relationship to pretentious movies. Cause I think, there's a lot of kind of movies that I would show to my girlfriend and she would not necessarily like them. She probably wouldn't be able to make it through it just out of boredom or thinking that they're just pretentious or weird for the sake of it. And the two movies that I kind of mentally compared it to in my mind was uh, Neon Demon, which I love. And at times when I'm feeling contrary, we'll say it's one of, it's my favorite movie of all time. Um, and Climax by Gaspar Noé, which is uh, kind of in the middle of something that I think was really weird and unsettling, but I, I kind of liked it, but I didn't love it. And I think for me, with these kinds of auteur-driven movies that have larger casts, I think they, they share a lot of things in common. But I think for me, what I really look for in a movie of this type is a lot of visual interest and a lot of like loud colors. I think Neon Demon and Climax both have that in spades. I, th I like when there's a little bit of like humor mixed in, and if there's just some fan like some fantasy elements, um, whether or not they're directly spelled out, I think I like when we establish this is not the real world and we are kind of playing in make-believe land where I feel like the killing of a sacred deer wants to pretend it's in the real world a little bit and it breaks into this weird surreal space where maybe this feels like it's a dream but it feels grounded enough to, to, to make me think that that's not the intention of it. So I have a lot of thoughts about this movie. I, I didn't really connect with it in any way in particular. Um, again, I'm glad that I watched it because it, it made me think of other pretentious movies that I I want to explore the reasons that I like those movies, but this kind of, if anything, just sets the end point of confirming to me the things that I don't like. Yeah. So, uh, I, uh, I have to admit, I, I didn't really expect Keegan to like this movie. Um, <laughs> though as a concession to Keegan, I will agree that the neon demon is a far better movie. Uh, honestly, the only reason I haven't made it into a Hank week is because I know he's, he knows the movie so well, and I want to introduce him to some new stuff. Um, but I was actually kind of expecting uh, that Taylor might be a little bit more into it, not for any particular reason. I just know that it does have some roots in a, uh, in a Greek tragedy, and he and I talk about the ancient world uh, with some frequency. Um, so a little bit surprised to learn he didn't connect with it, though uh, not really disheartened at all, because I've been trying to recommend a movie uh, for a Hank week that both of my ho-hosts would just be like, kind of disgusted with you know i wanted to pick a movie that like that people would be like oh yeah hank weeks no one likes hank week and i finally <laughs> <done it>. um, <laughs> so anyway with that high five to myself um i'd just like to say a couple things about my enjoyment of the movie which is that if you heard taylor and keegan describing this movie and you thought oh based on those descriptions it might not be for me you could be right um, I, uh, I kind of like some of the things they described, like things making people uncomfortable for the pure sake of making you uncomfortable. Like, I can enjoy that sometimes, um, especially when it's like, you know, shot in kind of like a fun way, which I, even though there wasn't a lot of color in this film, I did really kind of like the way it was shot. There were a lot of static shots or zooming shots that just kind of came in on characters clearly having difficult moments. But at the same time, the director obviously discouraged all of the actors from overly displaying their emotions. So you would have these people that were just like really pent up, just being zoomed in on by a camera or just being stayed on by a camera. It was very uncomfortable and to me, very visually striking. Um, so I like the camera work uh, combined with the direction. Um, that said, I mentioned that the director clearly had some strong notes for the actors in this movie, uh, especially around how much they showed their emotions. Um, and if you're watching this movie for the first time, you may be stricken, struck by uh, how much the actors don't emote. Um, there are vi almost the entire movie, the dialogue is delivered with little to no emotion. It's very matter of fact. Um, a lot of the things people are saying are like hard statements of fact, uh, which makes it kind of an odd watch because a lot of acting, uh, you know, when, when we discuss it in critical circles, 
you, you kind of think about like how they portrayed emotion or how they suppressed emotion like in a, in a scene where the character would obviously be trying to suppress emotion. But in this movie, they just kind of muted that whole aspect and had everyone just kind of deliver their lines, which I think was a very contentious decision from a directorial standpoint. I don't know if it was necessarily a good decision, but I watched it and just the way it kept me going, what the hell, consistently, really appealed to me. Um, though... I can absolutely understand, uh, given the fact that, you know, like common, uh, common criticism of acting comes from failure to emote, I can understand uh, <laughs> why this was probably a contentious decision. Um, but with that, I think that's almost all I can say without spoiling this movie. Uh, say what you will about how much you enjoyed the plot. I think that there are a lot of moments in the movie that are very plot-driven, um, and so it's a little bit difficult to talk about specific movements in general. So with that, I am ready to move into the spoiler section, unless my co-hosts have anything else to say in this less specific segment. The only thing I would add is that it seems the movie was like very well reviewed critically. Um, and I think that kind of gets into what Keegan was talking about, this idea of uh, pretentious movies or movies that you know, the review crowd, the reviewing clique would like, but, you know, average moviegoers probably wouldn't like. Um, but if you're if you're someone that just wants to see where these kind of art housey movies come from that get really good reviews, um, I think this would be a, a good way to kind of dive into that world. Yeah, that would be kind of a pencil dive, though. You go right to the bottom on that one. <laughs> yeah i would actually say if you were if you were to pick a hank movie that would be a better introduction i feel like suspiria is a one of those more mainline movies that's it's a major release and it has like you know big actors and a big uh, uh, star-studded cast but is a little bit softer of an introduction right that's more of a, a belly flop where you kind of you go in the water but you stay near the, the surface yeah, yeah. and actually yeah. just since that's been brought up i do want to draw like a quick uh, comparison between Suspiria and this movie. They're both kind of auteur-driven, uh, you know, artsy films, which for some people is a is a turnoff right away. That's fine. You don't need to watch them if they're not for you. I don't I don't begrudge you that at all. But Suspiria, I think, really plays it a little bit more more traditionally. They they lean into some I think more classic horror tropes that can be. Uh, a little bit comforting to an audience you know you have some classic like horror movie monster scenes you have some classic kind of like very gory encounters and i'm sorry if you haven't seen it like this shouldn't surprise you too much if you know the source material but uh anyway suspiria has a lot of that and this movie really doesn't like the uncomfortableness is not because of like a lot of like clear violence um there's not a lot of like there, there's not a single jump scare or anything in the movie. The uncomfortableness really centers around like social interactions, admittedly somewhat fantastical social interactions, but it's really stuff that you kind of have to sit with. It's not stuff that you're like, oh, the blood's not on screen anymore. And so that's kind of where the dividing line sits between the two movies for me. Um, but I, yeah, I think that yeah. Suspiria, as Keegan said, would probably be a better jumping in point to kind of like the, the critical darling... Uh, subcategory of art movies all right so i've said my piece no one jumped in to inter to uh, uh interrupt me or to object to what i was saying so i think that means we're ready for spoilers which means that the host will be taking a quick break to visit our kitchens or restrooms and then we'll be back shortly to talk about the movie full of spoilers. If you haven't seen the movie and you think even after all of this fairly uh, fairly intimidating discussion of it that you might still want to watch it, I'd recommend pausing at this point. Go watch the movie. It's about two hours long. It's on Netflix. And then come back after that. That said, if you've heard this discussion and you're like, I will never see this movie, feel free to listen. I don't think any of us are going to say anything that uh, you know should horrify you any more than the movie would. So... If you're not going to watch it, stick around. But with that, we'll be right back. Hi, everybody, and welcome back. The hosts of Rotating Reels are back from our respective kitchens, bathrooms, wherever we were during that break, and we're ready to discuss the killing of a sacred deer with full spoilers for the movie. 
So, um, during this section, as is implied by the title, there will be spoilers. This is a you know a somewhat plot-driven movie. Uh, these spoilers will probably ruin parts of the movie for you. So if you haven't seen it and you're planning on seeing it or you're interested in seeing it, put it down here. But otherwise, we're going to get into it. So the first thing uh, that I want to address is this movie's connection to Iphigenia in Alice or at Alice, depending on how you translate it. Um, and I, we won't go into this for too long, but I just kind of want to set the stage with it. Uh, Taylor has some interesting background from a classics course he's taken that I really just want to give him an excuse to expose. Um, and I have read the text of the play. So anyway, uh, this killing of a sacred deer is uh, an, an adaptation in some form or another of an, an ancient Greek tragedy entitled Iphigenia in Alice, uh, written by, oh, who is it written by? Uh, Euripides, um, who's a, a, a famous Greek playwright. And so the movie is obviously not a direct transla uh, not translation or adaptation of the source material. Uh, the characters are not Greek. They're not in Greece. In fact, they live in the modern day. Uh, they are, uh, most of the main characters are doctors or children of doctors in the U.S. So very different from the kind of like, uh, pre-Trojan War setting of Iphigenia in Alice. But the kind of major movements of the play and the movie do mirror each other fairly well. So to quickly summarize the movie, uh, what happens is that the main character, Stephen, uh, has a young boy that he meets up with with some frequency. It's revealed that he's meeting up with this boy because he is a surgeon who performed a surgery on the boy's father that resulted in the father's death. He's meeting with this boy, uh, presumably out of some form of guilt. But anyway, he's meeting with this boy regularly, unbeknownst to his family, until in the beginning of the movie, he introduces his family and some of his colleagues to the boy. Uh, as the boy becomes more ingrained in his life, it starts to become a question whether the death of the boy's father was Stephen's fault. And also, the boy's mother makes it in, uh, clear that she is interested in Stephen as a uh, romantic partner. So anyway, the movie that from that point kind of devolves into the boy, uh, into Stephen rejecting the boy's mother, and then the boy casting some sort of a curse on Stephen's family where everyone will die if Stephen does not choose one of them to kill between his son, his daughter, and his wife. And in the end of the movie, he ends up killing his son despite his daughter, daughter having begged to be the sacrifice um, because supposedly she loved her father and brother so much. So this plot is uh, in some ways fairly distinct from the plot of the play Iphigenia in Alice. Uh, so the play, is, as, as I mentioned, it takes place in Greece right before the Trojan War uh, as Ag Agamemnon is preparing a fleet to sail to Troy uh, in pursuit of Helen, who is his brother's wife. And uh, in the play, what happens is that Agamemnon realizes the fleet cannot sail because the weather is too still for a, a fleet to sail the Aegean. And uh, when he asks a seer why this is happening, the seer reveals that one of the gods is angry at him, and he has to sacrifice his daughter uh, in order to appease the god and to allow the, the war to go on. And he doesn't want to sacrifice his daughter but he needs to, because otherwise all of the soldiers who are ready to declare war uh, to retrieve Helen from Troy would otherwise very likely massacre his family if he was the one to choose like, not to allow the war to happen. So in the play, uh, uh, the large body of it is Agamemnon and his brother Menelaus discussing uh, like, whether or not his, he should kill his daughter to let the army sail, and kind of what happens is they both consider, uh, convince each other of the opposite of what they originally landed at. Menelaus initially wanted Agamemnon to sacrifice his daughter so that the war could happen. Agamemnon obviously originally did not wish to sacrifice his daughter, but Menelaus convinces Agamemnon that it is necessary, and Agamemnon convinces Menelaus, uh, at least appearingly, that that is not true, that... You know, it would be worse to kill your niece than it would be to not go to war. And uh, 
the actual, the original ending of the play has been lost to history. As I mentioned, it was written in 400 BC. So it's not known uh, really whether in the original ending, Agamemnon's daughter was sacrificed or if she was not, if something was sacrificed in her play. And that's a little bit of where this title, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, comes from. Um, in some modern versions of the play, Agamemnon's daughter is replaced by a sacred deer. And in other modern versions of the place, his daughter is replaced by his infant son, Orestes. Um, and in those versions where Orestes is, is the one killed instead of the daughter, that is most similar to the movie we see where Stephen ends up killing his son in place of his daughter who, who begged to be killed. Um, so anyway, there's this kind of uh, mirrored theme of needing to kill a family to avoid some greater evil. Uh, in Agamemnon's case, the greater evil is the army killing the rest of his family. In Stephen's case, the greater evil is a curse killing the rest of his family. But he, both of them need to make a choice about killing one member of their family. And uh, I would say that to me at least, the trappings of the movie, even though there are distinctions, the characters all have different names, the setting is very different. Um, some of the struggles the two characters go through do strike me as remarkably similar. That's my huge speech on <laughs> that I said that I would not do on the connection of the movie to Greek <laughs> tragedies. Um, with that, Taylor, did you have something to say on that? I, I did, yeah. Um, and so I, I do think it is important to consider the source material because there are some really big similarities. Um, and so kind of the, the, the first thing that I, I thought of, um, so I, I didn't actually know that this movie was... was based on that play, which I had read uh, in college. Um, and so I went back and looked up my, you know, my notes from that class about the play and everything. Um, and so something to understand about ancient tragedies was that they were performed as a, a competitive and religious um, competition. So different playwrights would perform these different tragedies. Um, it was done in, you know, the sacred ground of Dionysus in Athens. Um, and everyone, it was mandatory for all the citizens to come and attend, and then they would pick which play was the best. And tragedies were um, were also interesting because the, the characters in the tragedies themselves, basically each one of them thinks they're right in their interpretation of what's going on in the play, and they try to convince the audience as best as they can that their claim is the correct one. And, and that contest amongst the characters um, was called Agon or, or Agon. Um, and so we do kind of see that in this movie, right? We have the doctor uh, and then the, the Martin, the, the son of uh, the patient that the doctor killed. Um, and Martin even says, you know, I think this is the only way to get justice. And so they're kind of putting this to the audience a bit about who you think is right. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't quite work for me because Martin just comes off as a total lunatic um, and because all of these characters have this very still, I already said this, but this, this stilted monotone dialogue, um, it's hard to identify with any of them. It's hard to really see them as people you know or that you could feel pity for. Um, and that's, you know, at least for the ancient Greeks, that was very important. So Aristotle actually thought Euripides was the best of the tragic writers. Um, and Aristotle thought that the point of tragedy was to evoke pity and fear. And he goes into it a bit about pity in particular, and he says that you need a bit of distance from the person suffering in order to feel pity. So if you see your mom fall down the stairs, you don't feel pity from your mom, right? You, you care too much about her. Um, and so these characters, because, again, because of that dialogue and all these very strange, seemingly uh, meaningless decisions in the movie where, you know, the, the characters will do something, they'll they'll talk about how much body hair they have, and then they'll show each other how much body hair they have. Um, it, it just really disconnected, at least for me, disconnected me from these characters. Um, and so I therefore couldn't feel pity from them. I was too far removed. I was just like, oh, God, what is happening? Who are these people? Um, and the, other, the last little thing I wanted to mention about kind of the connection to these ancient Greek tragedies um, is that <clears throat> Aristotle said that in order for there to be pity, we have to think that these consequences are unjust. If the bad things happening to characters uh, seems like things that they deserve to have happen to them, we wouldn't feel pity. We'd think of it as them getting their comeuppance, right? Um, but 
the for all of these characters, it's very unclear. Uh, you know, there's a question of whether the doctor was drunk, and that's why Martin's father died in the surgery. Um, all, all of that is just muddied enough that it's it's hard to feel that pity emotion, um, which you know for the ancients was a, a requisite, at least for us all, a requisite of tragedies. Um, and so I think that connection was pretty interesting, and I went back and, and kind of thought more about it because. I didn't feel any connection to these characters, and I think it was because of these very strange dialogue choices and these other, you know, there, there's a scene where, right in the beginning where uh, Nicole Kidman tells someone at a, at a gala that her daughter's just started menstruating. And I'm like, oh, uh, okay, it's actually, let's see It's how actually Colin Farrell that delivers that one. Oh, okay, excuse me. Well, so it's, it's you know, you think okay, maybe this is like the lobster. Maybe we're going to see how there's some, you know, the society seems very similar to our own, but there's some major differences, and that'll be important in the plot. And nope, it comes up again that she's just started menstruating. She says that everybody talks about it, and it's not relevant for anything. It's just a weird thing put in the movie that, for me, served to kind of distance me from these characters. And I think that's why kind of I've been a little bit uh, uh, not in love with the movie, just because I, I didn't really get that sense of pity. I didn't really get... I didn't really get much of anything from from these characters due to those kind of strange things they inserted into it. So I kind of wanted to ask you guys, did you, focusing on the emotion of pity, did you guys feel pity from these characters? Did you feel bad for any of them when all these bizarre things were happening? Or did you feel that distance that, that I felt? Um, I'd actually like to answer this first, if that's okay with you, Keegan. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I actually think that's that's a really interesting take for me because I didn't I didn't feel pity for these characters um, because, like you said, you're very distant from them. But I kind of like that about this movie in that it almost feels like this kind of like horrible event that is taking place in front of you that you don't need to like feel personally affected. It's it's kind of it's like watching a stage on the play, like just because of how weird it is to me. I'm like, okay, like I can follow the events unfolding. They make sense to me given the rules that have been established in the movie, but I'm able to look at it from this complete outsider's perspective. And there are things exactly like you mentioned, like everyone is happy to talk about menstruation. It doesn't bother anyone at all in this movie. People don't flinch when it's brought up. And like body hair, people are always showing each other their body hair, which is really weird to me. But like... It kind of, like Keegan was saying, you know, like he likes movies that kind of take place in a place that's clearly not the real world. This movie didn't have that many obviously fantastical elements to it, but those socially fantastical elements, people not caring about menstruation, it not being that weird for people to be just lifting their shirts and showing body hair, it kind of made me feel like an outsider in in a way that I actually kind of found pleasing. I found like the movie to me was a little bit like being an alien looking in on some very clearly plotted events. And that's not something that I find a lot of other movies have relied on. That was actually part of why I liked it. A lot of other movies seem to kind of rely on my emotional response to everything that's happening. And this movie seemed to have somewhat of a disregard for that. Um, Again, that could be me personally, but that was actually like, it's interesting that you brought those things specifically up because to me, they were things that I specifically enjoyed about the movie. And now, Keegan, hmm. you can go. Interesting. Yeah, no, and I, I think you guys bring up really good points. I'm the only one that hadn't uh, read the original source material, and I, I had no idea going into this movie that it was is not an original screenplay. Um, but yeah, it, I... I've, oh, sorry, go ahead. It, it is an original screenplay. Just the the it's you know loosely based on ancient Greek source material that's been produced on stage dozens, yep. if not hundreds of times. Yeah, I'm, I'm still in Academy. Uh, you know, it's it's adapted screenplay for me. I'm still in Academy <laughs> mode. I'm still still full release <laughs> mode. Um, <laughs> but no, I I wasn't aware of that. And I I after hearing you guys talk about it, I think one of the things that made me feel so disconnected from these characters is that there's just no sense of stake. Like listening to the original story. Like if you have someone that you know is about to lose a war unless he gives up his daughter to satiate a god, I think those are enormous stakes that are very interesting. And you know, understanding the the mental anguish and turmoil of that individual, what they would have to go through, seems like something that you could really latch onto because you you know, while gods and these this level of war is something that seems so foreign to us in modern day, I think 
you know, latching on to the decision that somebody has to make and humanizing that individual is something that would, you know, pull me in a lot to, to the story. And I think that's something that's a huge failing of this movie. And I think it's clearly very intentional. Like, I don't think Yorgos Lanthimos has any interest in making us care about, is it Stevens, the, the doctor? Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't think he has any concern about whether or not we side with him or if we feel any sort of pity for his family. Because there's nothing that sets us up to feel like these people, you know, deserve any better. Like, I throughout the entire time I'm watching this movie, honestly, I just wanted everyone to die. Like, there's no, there's nothing for me that says any of these characters have to make it out and they're going to live a good life. They're going to keep, regardless of the outcomes, they're going to keep being in this weird world where people can do curses, but it's kind of the real world and we show each other our armpits. Like, it's just not, and I don't need things to be so grounded, right? Like, I I just talked about how Neon Demon had these fantastical elements that I really liked, but I think there's enough grounding to make me latch on to those characters where those more surreal elements feel like flares as opposed to like something that takes over the watching experience in my mind. Um, so yeah, I just, I really couldn't bring myself to feel any sense of pity for these, for these characters whatsoever. Um, and one of the scenes that just really put me off and I actually, I, I actually lied to you guys in our break when we were talking about it, but I texted Hank that I, I didn't know if I could make it through the rest of the movie after a certain scene. And I, I, uh, for a second, I thought it was the really sad hand job between Nicole Kidman and the anesthesiologist. But thinking back on it and just flipping through the plot on uh, Wikipedia right now, the scene that puts me off and I think I think illustrates why I have such a disconnect to these characters and just don't care about their fates at all. Uh, when when Mar- or when Stephen first is, is at the hospital or his son's been there for a little bit of time, his son can't use his legs, the curse is affecting him, his kids don't want to eat, he's getting increasingly frustrated with his son as opposed to being empathetic and he pushes him out of his wheelchair, just kind of throws him around on the ground. He says, let's go for a walk. Come on, walk. And he's just getting you know really, really irate that he's not just using his feet. Um, and so he sits down on the, the sun or on the ground with his son and he says, I'll tell you a secret and you tell me a secret. Oh my God, yeah. And he goes, when I was a young boy, I had started masturbating. And when I did, I would only have a couple semen, just small, small amounts, nothing, puddles. But then I, when my father was asleep and he was drunk, I, I snuck over to him and I pulled down his pants and I stroked his penis until he master, or until he, he ejaculated everywhere. Tons and tons of semen, an enormous amount of ejaculate. And he's telling this to his son. He goes, okay, see, we all have secrets. Now you tell me one and then we, why don't we try walking again? And I think this kind of conversation is just, it does nothing to service the story. It is purely just in my mind for the shock factor of saying, hey, these people are not in our real world and they're going to say absolutely insane things to one another and it's not going to have any effect, right? It's just brick walls saying crazy shit to brick walls and there's absolutely no consequence or reason for it. And I just, I really didn't know if I was going to make it through the movie and I, I watched the rest of it pretty guarded. But things like that, man, they just did nothing but distance me from it. And I think that's intentional, but personally, I, I just really don't enjoy that kind of feeling. Yeah, yeah I'm, I I'm, think... I'm, right, I'm right there with you. I think that's fair. Um, I don't want to defend it too much. Uh, (laughs) Like, like obviously that's a really weird scene. Um, What I will say is like, for me that gave the events kind of like a biblical feeling to me because it, it called to mind a a fairly important like biblical story involving a a sleeping father, um, which I won't get too much into. I don't want to talk about biblical literature during our film review podcast, but uh, (laughs) yeah, It's it's just another one of those things that like I'm interested you brought it up specifically because even though it's like kind of a a like a really weird scene like for me wasn't off putting at all I was like wow that is a weird monologue I'm into that and uh, you know Hmm. maybe that's just uh, maybe that's just like weirdo you know weirdo you know (laughs) Hank talking Um, but anyway really interesting to hear that take yeah. Well, that's why I like getting your take, Hank, because I think me and Keegan are pretty uh, one mind about that kind of stuff. But like I said before, you look at the the reviews, and this movie's been incredibly well reviewed. And I yeah. I don't I don't really get it because you know like everyone says, oh, it's unsettling. It wasn't unsettling to me when these bizarre lines were delivered or the bizarre way in which they were delivered because I, I just felt like rolling my eyes. I was like, okay, we can. 
we could right now think of something crazier than jacking off your sleeping father. And, and it yeah. doesn't mean it's interesting or, or, or a good story just to think of crazy things that could happen, you know? What if we had Nicole Kidman pretend she was a dead body while Colin Fer- Farrell masturbates on his side of the bed? It's like, what, what, what are we doing? This is just really yeah. uh, uncalled for character development in my mind. But again, hey, I, I don't want to poo-poo on a movie that you like. I, 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 no, I mean, it, like, I, I like it, that you, you, know? you bring up these points. I, again, like, I think it's interesting that, that this level of unsettling is the thing that kind of gets to you because like – it's not unsettling in the way that I think Taylor and I would typically be unsettled by something like Midsommar or Hereditary. Like, it's just kind of a normal family drama with, like, really, really weird shit going on all the time. And I, nothing about it, like, I need to physically turn away, even when it does get violent. Nothing is so graphic on screen that I ever had to close my eyes. It's just, like, it's it plays with those societal norms and questions them in a way, like, with, with characters saying this weird stuff. And, again, I it's just didn't really do it for me but it's interesting to me that that's kind of like what unsettles you maybe you're so like kind of hardened to to horror movies that this is the kind of stuff that like really still feels fresh to you i don't know it's i i i don't even know that it unsettles me per se i think it's just interesting to me sometimes like the way they decide to deliver these stories because like i watch you know the the jacking off the sleeping dad scene and obviously i'm not like completely horrified so much that i need to turn off the movie you know like it's it's yeah you know it's like kind of a disturbing thing to say in polite society but uh like just kind of seeing like what weird monologues yorgos lanthimos put in with these characters that i'm not at all attached to you know like i'm not feeling any emotions for these characters i don't really care about the outcomes when they're saying these weird things i'm like what's going on in their world like what, it, it makes me curious in a way like if i really felt for these characters i think that i would be really disturbed by it and probably not like the movie as much but with them being so alien it just kind of like makes me like wonder about like the society they've grown up in in a weird way mm-hmm. um yeah yeah and i yeah and so i i keep bringing up the reviewers because i'm trying to figure out why they liked it so much uh, and I guess I guess it's just all of these weird, bizarre things that are, don't exist or you know are not uh, common norms and conventions in our society. And I guess that combined with these big names and kind of interesting camera and score work ma- makes it a, a well-reviewed film. But but to to me, it just didn't land at all. So that's that's why I like getting your perspective, Hank, because I think you're you're tapping into how these other reviewers are feeling and those are the reviewers getting paid the, the big bucks to, to write about this stuff so that's why i like hearing your perspective you know this is this is kind of a weird aside but i feel like it's worth bringing up is that uh i have for so long tried to avoid being that kind of reviewer or like i i don't even look up like the like highbrow review sites when i'm looking for a movie to see anymore i look at the imdb and the rotten Tomatoes scores i don't read any of the text reviews and then i watch the movie like i've been like i don't want i don't want the critics to get to me i don't want them to put anything into my mind and it seems like i have ended up being one of them and it's that is actually in itself mildly disturbing to me but maybe i'm like i don't know like maybe maybe this is my place <laughs> somehow i am on their side all right so um i guess are there any other specific plot points either of you two want to talk about? Hmm. Um, I, one thing I kind of I was a little disappointed by was how the mother was only in that one scene because I thought, as much as I thought Martin's character was kind of the most interesting character in the show mm-hmm. or the movie rather, um, I thought having the mother there added like another lens into this craziness, and so to bring her on for that one scene and then to never see her again, I, I thought was kind of a, a letdown for me, but I wanted to ask you guys if you thought there was a reason to it, or you thought it made sense to not see her again or kind of what was going on with the mom there. Martin. That was actually one of my big complaints with the film. Actually, that was one of the things that I wasn't like, Oh, that was weird. And I loved it. Um, that was like one of the things that I actually didn't like. I really wanted the mother to be there when in a later scene, Nicole Kidman visited the house. 
Like, I thought that mm. would have been a more interaction than her, inter- or a more interesting interaction than her interacting with Martin would have been her interacting with Martin's mother. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought the, the, the mother was an interesting character, and I honestly agree with you. I wish she'd been included more. That doesn't ruin the movie for me, but uh, that is actually a criticism I have of it. What about, what about you, Keegs? Yeah, I'm kind of racking my brain to think of other scenes. Um, I really don't think I have much more. I think the scene where Nicole Kidman goes to Martin's house and he's eating the spaghetti is particularly weird. And again, just like very par for the course of, of like if you could take that scene and play it and then the audience were to watch that, that's like the clear delineator of whether or not you're going to enjoy this movie where Martin says, everyone told me I ate spaghetti like my father. They stick their fork in and they twirl it and they put it in their mouth. He just kind of rambles on about that for a solid two minutes. And I, again, was just kind of continually put off by it. But I will say one thing I thought was really interesting about that scene is he's wearing a white shirt while like incredibly aggressively eating the spaghetti I was just waiting for there to be some splatters, but he never really does. And it's, I was like, is there, are they trying to say something that he's, he's untaintable, that he's like, he can't, he can't be sullied by anything. And I was digging for meaning there, but I don't think, I think he's just a careful slob. So that was more interesting to me than anything else. There's so many dead ends like that. Honestly, like when Colin Farrell gives the kid the watch, he like lies a little bit about it. Like he lies about, I'm pretty sure he does about how deep you can go with the watch and you know the uh, martin gives the kids uh, presents when he comes over so at first you're wondering if maybe the presence of the source of the illness there's a lot of stuff like that that never turns into anything it kind of like lost in that sense that there's all this stuff they build up and you're waiting for it all tied together at the end and it doesn't it just it just doesn't it's just weird to be weird yeah i, I think that's actually a really fair point there is a lot of stuff that's weird to be weird and there's there's really one plot line in this movie. This is a movie, in my opinion, more or less without subplots, which is fairly rare. Um, but in this movie, there's just really the curse and what happens because of the curse. And they just ignore everything else that happens uh, to the characters. I think that's off-putting to a lot of viewers. I personally really don't mind it, and I kind of like it. I really like open questions. You know, I, I've read a lot of H.P. Lovecraft, you know? Like, I, I'm kind of like, yeah, I can, I can forgive an author or a screenwriter from wanking all over the page. Um, <laughs> but I'm not going to lie and be like, yeah, you know, there's something deeper hidden in there. Like, that, that really did coalesce into something most of the movie coalesces into nothing there's the one through line running through it and the end is that steven kills his son instead of his daughter um and uh to me that was enough but i can totally understand how it's not for for a lot of viewers and i can understand like why you would see things like the gifts being delivered and never followed up on and be like what the hell why do you spend time showing him the he he introduced every gift there was a monologue for each one I can understand mm-hmm. why you wouldn't like that. Well, and it's sort of but just I, like, you know, if we're going to have these characters do all these very bizarre things, like show everyone their armpits and body hair and stuff. That's <laughs> fine. I have no trouble challenging social norms. But I'd, I'd like there to be a reason, or at least maybe it exposes, you know, hey, maybe we haven't thought about our own norms in this way. Just something, not just having it just to have it, because that just seems kind of, not, not not my cup of tea, anyway. Yeah, and I don't blame you at all. But with that, I want to get into our ratings, because I think we've kind of beaten the plot points out. We've described the entire plot of the movie. We've described the entire plot of Iphigenia at Alice. So, overall, what did you guys think? I'm going to save my rating for last. I know it's going to be the highest, but let's start with Keegan. Boy, oh boy. So I think... We've gone over quite a bit like where we kind of stand on this movie. Uh, again, as always, I'm, I'm happy to have these in my, my repertoire of things that I've seen just because it's, it's another data point of things that I do or don't like. And in, in, in many ways, I think I look back on these movies and kind of noodle on them. Like, I think if I were to rewatch Suspiria, I'm a little bit softer on that movie. And I think there was some, some interesting stuff that I maybe was a little harder on than necessary. And so, you know, maybe I'll revisit this movie in a couple years and see it through a different lens. Um, but as it is right now, I, I really did not enjoy this movie much in any particular way, other than 
it pushing me to consider things that I liked in other movies. Um, so if I had to give this an actual rating, I would say uh, that my dad is two tenths as hairy as your dad or a 20%. <laughs> <laughs> all right i i have to say love your scale buddy <laughs> taylor it's, you know they're very hard on that three percent not three percent so or three times <laughs> sorry three times yeah you know three times or not three times it's hard to tell yeah, yeah. It, like are you gonna pick every hair <laughs> but with that taylor what do you think uh yeah I, I i didn't love it i'm giving it five out of ten kids falling out of bed that was my favorite part of the movie. Is when they take these kids up, or the kids that say I'm getting out of the bed, but they're paralyzed. Like they just fall out of the bed, out of camera shot. That was the only time I laughed. Was these kids crawling around on the ground? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the the cast is great. Some of the acting, especially Martin, is interesting. The camera work's interesting. The score is really luscious. Um, but not 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 my not my my, my cup of tea. Fair enough. And with that, I'm going to give it my rating. Um, I think it's pretty clear at this point. I have a different stance than my co-hosts on this movie. I like the weirdness. Um, I fully admit that most of it doesn't go anywhere, but I'm like, show me something weird. You know, like I've seen plenty of movies that mean something. I, you know, nothing means anything. Show me something weird. (laughs) Um, So uh, anyway, I give this movie a solid... uh, Eight out of eleven sad hand jobs. <laughs> Someone had to do it. Yeah, it was no, right. It, it was oh, right there. It was I going to be to done. My, my favorite character in the whole movie was the dog. The entire time, this family owned this dog, and it's just walking, being a normal dog. It's the most normal <laughs> part of the movie. It walks around. It wags its tail. Everybody's going insane, and the dog's just sitting there the whole time. That that dog was my spirit animal in this movie, just, <laughs> yeah. just hanging on, just trying to be normal. There's a really great scene near the end where, like, they show the dog again, and it's just walking out of the room, and you're like, man, that dog knows what's up. I wouldn't want to be there either. <laughs> but anyway i think that's our review of uh the killing of a sacred deer um you know some one of us liked it the two of uh two of two of our uh other co-hosts were more lukewarm on it i was surprised taylor gave it as high of a rating as he did if you're into a movie that is weird for the sake of being weird and has really no meaning behind it so you know if you're some kind of weird nihilist or something check out the killing of a sacred deer you might enjoy it um also if you like it maybe check out the lobster i don't like it as much but uh it's another one of yorgos lanthimos's movies and uh if you haven't seen either of them and you're curious to dip your toe into yorgos lanthimos i'd recommend checking out the favorite first this is most recent english movie um and uh you know it's got emma stone so everyone seems to like her um but anyway, I think it won an Oscar for Olivia Coleman's performance. Best, best Olivia lead, best Coleman, supporting? yeah, yeah, no, she was uh, best supporting. Olivia Coleman yep. in the favorite killed it really hard, but it is really uncomfortable to watch her performance. <laughs> um, <laughs> There's even the sad, sad hand job. It's um, it's somewhere with her character, <laughs> but uh, no, it's not. Um, but anyway, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's our review of the killing of a sacred deer. Now then, before I leave y'all, I want to uh, just give you a little bit of a teaser about what we'll be talking about next week. So, I mentioned it up at the top of the of the episode. Next week, we're going to be reviewing Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead. It's just came out. I believe it is available on, or going to be available on HBO Max. Netflix. And he, oh, really? Netflix? Okay, it's so Netflix, right? it, it's, it's the one everyone's got. Be excited. It's a Zack Snyder movie. It's got Dave Bautista, so it's going to have, you know, all of Dave Bautista's charisma and all of Zack Snyder's just kind of kablooey. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I'm so excited. here's the IMDb for that movie. Following a zombie outbreak in Las Vegas, a group of mercenaries take the ultimate gamble, venturing into a quarantine zone to pull off the greatest heist ever attempted. So if that doesn't titillate you, I don't know what will. Um, I am personally very titillated. 
anything of the dead i'm into Zack snyder honestly don't think he's a great director but uh you know i think he can do action well it's not one of my favorite genres uh but i think he can do it well and all i'm asking from him is some gory action here so shouldn't be I too hard be happy. i'm personally excited yeah. Yeah. Hank, you're gonna be pretty happy. No, no spoilers. But man, this movie fucking rocks. <laughs> also, Hank, while you're on the IMDb <laughs> page, this is this is the part that surprised me. What? Can you read the the audience the runtime of the movie? Yeah, this movie is. Uh, let me see here. Two and a half hours long, which is oh insanely long for a horror movie. <laughs> like, uh, you know, to give you to, to give you a reference, a lot of the really well-reviewed reviewed horror movies of our time are an hour and a half and they're not even action movies they're drama they need time to develop what's happening so two and a half hours for an action horror i'm curious anyway i, with I that, can't wait for you guys to see it it's so good you're gonna have to tune in next week to hear our thoughts and with that hank out bye